Welcome to the Sourdough Podcast. We are your hosts, Jay and Ashley. We're coming to you from our log cabin studio, formerly known as our living room, on our farm here in Western Montana. Okay, and we're live. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody, to the Sourdough Podcast. Um, this is our, I don't know, probably will be end up being our second or third episode. We'll see. And uh, just to get started, there's a couple things we just want to talk about real quick. And one of them is, I was thinking about this yesterday, uh, why why is it so friggin' hard to do things that are good for my health? Uh, the example that I'm thinking about is, uh, back around 10 years ago, I had this uh, skiing accident where I uh, suffered a, a grade three AC separation in my shoulder. It's it's basically three ligaments connecting my clavicle uh, to the rest of my shoulder, and those all popped and, and tore. So um, actually, it's kind of crazy. The grade three is kind of reserved for people who really the most common accidents are motorcycle accidents and hockey players. I mean, the or my orthopedic was the the actually the the orthopedic at the time for the Boston Bruins. And he was like, yeah, I mean, I, probably over half of the, the Boston Bruin team, Boston Bruins team have has this uh, um, this injury. But getting back to the point uh, there, I've been suffering from complications with with my shoulder. Uh, and so I've been going to physical therapy for a couple of years now. And it, it has certainly helped. But it uh, sometimes it's just really difficult for one reason or another for me to actually get motivated enough to do those exercises that are actually important for my body and I'm just wondering why is it why is it so hard for me to do them what do you think um yeah I I think that a lot of uh our motivation for especially especially for things to do with our health come from in a way come from a place of pain so when a person is feeling a lot of discomfort or an inability to live their live their life um, in comfort on a day-to-day basis or when daily activities start to become a challenge due to an issue in their body, I think our motivation inherently increases. For example, last year when I was dealing with some severe pelvic and lower back pain um, and found out I have a... Uh, bulge disc and a pinched nerve my motivation was so high to do all my exercises to get better because I was in so much pain that some days I almost couldn't walk and having a job as a baker where I'm on my feet on hard floor up to 12 plus hours a day I knew that in order to work the job I was working and have some longevity in it and in my own my own physical health. I just like, I had to make my body better. And so for me, there was that physical pain connecting to my emotional state that made me feel significant motivation to get up extra early to do those exercises Mm. and do them again at the end of the day and even stop sometimes midday to do them again. Um, And when you're suffering from significant pain, I think it can be easier to see and feel your progress because for me, I would wake up and realize I had slept through the night only waking up once because my back didn't keep me awake all night. And so that's like significant progress. And that makes it even easier to be motivated until you reach a point or a plateau 
in which you can't feel yourself improving and you're not necessarily, it's not that you're not getting better, but you've likely done a lot of work and a lot of recovery. And so if there's not that constant like nagging at you, reminding you, this is why you need to do those exercises, this pain is the outcome of not doing those exercises, the motivation just seems to decrease. Mm. And I think many people can experience that in a variety of things like with weight loss and being really motivated initially by some sort of health aspect that might arise and losing that first 50 pounds and then hitting that plateau where it becomes much harder to continue losing weight and keeping that weight off. Mm. And so it's something I'm sure there's psychological factors to that in which um, the more progress you are seeing, the more motivated you stay But once you reach a point and perhaps that's you with your shoulder where it's like, well, you're functioning on your day to day. It does cause some problems. It really started to show up again when we started rock climbing a lot more. And that's when you became motivated enough to go to physical therapy and initially do those exercises because your brain was like, "Okay, I got to get better because I want to be stronger so that I can climb harder. And then maybe as we moved away from rock climbing, as we started our new businesses, that motivation just decreased because your energy had to be spent elsewhere, such as farming, <laughs> developing a cafe, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> the instance that happened a few days ago where I, I took a step back to actually think about why I wasn't doing these exercises. It, I wasn't in a lot of pain, um, but it felt a little bit tweaky, but it wasn't as again, a lot of pain. And, I wonder is probably because for me that those muscles are weak and therefore it's going to take extra concentration and extra work and I'm going to feel weak and I'm not going to feel good about myself that I am so weak in those muscles still that my motivation got trumped by the uh, potential um, uh, negative feelings that would occur uh, during and after the exercises. Like, yeah, maybe I would feel better that I actually did those exercises and feel good about myself. But just that, that point of, of, uh, of decision-making where you, you go down the road and actually do what is healthy for you, that is hard. And that is something that I think everybody struggles with. Some people are better at just, you know, overcoming the inner bitch to actually do those, uh, things that are necessary for their health. But yeah, it's just, just wanted to touch upon that. And I'm sure people can relate to it out there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think for us today, um, (laughs) getting here to this table right now and sitting down to record ourselves um, was something we were lacking motivation in and felt uh, serious, I guess, also lack in energy overall. Um, It certainly didn't help that we drank seven beers yesterday. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we had a nice little day off in which we did a little yard maintenance around the property and farm and just enjoyed being in nature with some beverages and are certainly paying the price today uh, with feeling our low energy and Mm. our brain fog. Uh, And sitting here, we finally had to get up and look. We actually went and did a yoga video. And when I looked for a video to do, uh, the first one that popped up was yoga when you're feeling for when you're feeling unmotivated they're listening yeah they're they're probably listening to us but uh we took it as a sign that that's probably what we needed in that moment and so we did we committed to that 23 minutes 
I did that yoga, did a quick little walk, and really felt our brains refresh. Yeah. It wasn't only the brain for me, but, uh, or it wasn't only the brain for me. Uh, it was also just this, the, maybe some people can't necessarily define it, but, you know, anxiety for me comes from my chest and it just feels like this overall tightness in my body that I can't really escape. I try to take deep breaths and, and use my parasympathetic system to try and, you know, relax my nerves and, and get to a point of, of centeredness, but I just couldn't fight it. And it was getting, it was affecting my ability to, to even just read and, 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 um, um, process information and get it into our outline for this podcast today that we're going to be talking about. But, uh, yeah, it was really just really challenging for me to, to get rid of that energy. And I finally, I just looked over at Ashley. I was like, actually, I need to do something. I need to do some yoga or just some, some breathing exercises to, to relax this tightness in my chest um, that I was feeling because I, I just couldn't feel like I was going to perform today and be able to talk coherently to to you. So, mm-hmm. so anyway, we, we took a little little time for ourselves. And I think, uh, like you said, many people can probably relate to that and not even just necessarily with their health, but that feeling or that lack of motivation um, applying to many things. Like there's a lot of people out there wanting to pursue a passion or try to start up some sort of business. And it can be really challenging to push through those feelings of unmotivation when there is that fear associated with it Mm -hmm. of, gosh, this is going to be really hard. What if I don't succeed? What if I don't do well enough? What if no one's interested in listening to my podcast? Mm -hmm. And so it can be hard to, um, convince yourself to just go for it and set aside those feelings of lack of motivation and Mm -hmm. just push through to be there and be present and just go for it and at least try something, even if it's just sitting down and writing uh, an outline or making a checklist and getting one item checked on that list. If that's all you can accomplish in that day, see it, like take that with pride and see it as a success and a piece of motivation to help you get where you're going and in turn you might find that that helps overall with anxiety and Mm. those feelings around um, lacking motivation yeah that's that's one way you can um, work through those negative emotions or negative feelings that you're having whether it be just lack of motivation or lack of self-confidence but you know I, I also think that sometimes you need to take a step back and and become aware of what you're feeling you know, it sounds ridiculous, but what you're feeling on the inside, you know, I was feeling this, this just low level anxiety and I've, you know, had experience with anxiety in the past and I know how to, um, work through it and get back to a, a more centered state. Um, but sometimes it's not about just that raw grit, that raw motivation or the raw ability to overcome motivation or lack of motivation to, um, perform a behavior or a task. Sometimes you do have to understand where where this energy is coming from or where this uh this feeling is coming from before you can actually do the good work right like you know if i just tried to just push through this feeling i was having this morning i don't know if i would feel as good as i do now uh if i didn't go up if we didn't go up and and do some yoga and and just take a break for ourselves to to get to that mental clarity to record this podcast so there's, you know, there's two differences, right? There's just ignoring it and pushing through it, being like, well, I'm feeling this way, but I'm just going to push through it. Yeah, that that does work sometimes. And it's a it's a great 
tool to have that ability to just push through those negative feelings. But sometimes it's also really good or it's uh, utilitarian to take a step back and breathe through it or just process those emotions and then get back to your work. Because you might actually, even though you have less time to allocate to your work, you might actually get, you might actually be more productive in the end as opposed to not taking a look at those feelings and just pushing through and just trying to get that work done. I can't tell you how many times I was distracted when I was having these feelings, doing the research for this podcast, where I just couldn't process the information. I was reading it, but I was thinking about everything else. Right, absolutely. And I don't, I mustn't have made myself very clear. I wasn't at all trying to tell people to suppress their feelings and to just push through to try to create your own motivation. Um, by sharing about like us taking that time for ourselves to do yoga. I was trying to imply it's important to, to acknowledge what you're feeling and take some time to kind of recover from that moment. And then like we're doing now sitting down and making a go of whatever you're, you were hoping to put your yeah. mind toward. All right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we're in agreement there. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we've been trying to figure out about what we should call this podcast and the only thing that I could come up with is just the quote that you hear all the time out there um, from various producers and farmers where they say, I'm not organic. I just practice organically or my practices are beyond organic. We aren't certified organic, but we use organic practices. You know, what What the hell is all that, you know, jargon about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was just thinking as you... Uh, reiterated all of those points out loud and in through our years at the farmer's market um, we once were at a point in time in our early years where we were the farmer saying well we aren't actually certified organic but we do use organic practices the first year yeah the first year oh yeah that was mm-hmm. just for the first year yeah um but, but even, yeah we were <laughs> but even during that year in saying that to people we frequently questioned if it was okay to be saying that yeah we've gone back and forth over time about the benefits of being usda certified organic Mm -hmm. versus just being able to live in a community in which we can tell our consumers that we practice organically and they're welcome to come see the farm and as a small farm as we were still are, but as we were in 2020, just getting started, it seemed insane to think about the process uh, to become a certified organic farm when we didn't have really any um, income being generated at that time. And so for us, it was just verbally giving our customers that assurance like, yeah, yeah, we're using organic practices. Here's what we're doing. We're working on low till methods. We'd like to be a regenerative farm and in a way using some of those buzzwords. Yeah. But to try and differentiate. Yeah, to try and differentiate ourselves, but also to to really speak truth of what we want to do. Like Mm -hmm. we we grow organically because that is what we consume ourselves. We don't want anything that's sprayed with shit and chemicals that can harm us. Yeah. Um, That's what we eat. That's our choice. That's mm -hmm. our standard. Yeah. And that's what we wanted to be able to share with the community. And so I think our perspective shifted a little bit in 2021 when we did 
finally sit down and go through the pages and pages and pages and pages <laughs> and dollars and dollars and dollars to obtain our USDA organic certification. And yep. perhaps you can touch a little bit on that initial paperwork and yeah. process to get us our um, certification in 2021. Absolutely. Uh, but first, I just wanted to note that in an ideal world, in a um, in that perfect world, every single farm would would be intimately tied to their community and everybody would perfectly trust the the farmer to do the practices that you know improve soil fertility, uh, improve biodiversity, um, grow food with the highest nutrition and not compromise the health of our planet. And that would be that would be a great world. But it's a it's a world that maybe will never ever exist. People are people, and people are not necessarily trustworthy. I can't tell you how many people that I've at first thought was were trustworthy people that ended up um, being not. And so yeah, like you know, and there's of course there's going to be situations and examples where you can trust your local farmer, even though they're not certified organic, that they are using those practices. And we're not saying to never say that. But it's just going back and forth between the two. Like, I don't know how how much do you know your farmer truly? You know, how many times do you actually go to that farm and go through all of their list of materials, go through all of their seeding stock, making sure their seeds are non-GMO, making sure they're using manure properly? I can go on and on and on about all of the actual standards that are in the NOP guidelines that um, in order to get certified, you have to abide by and abide by by to a T. And yes, there are problems out there in the, on the USDA uh, guidelines that have a lot of people questioning the USDA as a certifying agent. And you know, people even wonder if it will ever be trustworthy again. And we have that same, those same feelings and sentiment. There are times where we're like, well, well screw this. Like, why are we wa you know, spending so much money, wasting, quote unquote, wasting so much time getting our certification when they are certifying hydroponic systems that are not grown in soil? You know, like, what do we do? It's it's a really tough decision, and, mm -hmm. and it's an ongoing conversation, and it's the reason why there are, there are these add-on organic certifications, like the Real Organic Project, the Regenerative Organic Alliance, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, but and, yeah, we can go through those. And just to back up um, a little bit, for those of you that are not familiar with uh, the organic programs that are out there. Jay had mentioned NOP. So NOP is the National Organic Program. It's the federal regulatory framework in the U.S. Um, around governing organic food. Yeah. So if you hear NOP, that's just the organic program, National Correct. Organic Program. Yeah, I, I should slow down. Um, but yeah, so, you know, the USDA, which is the United States Department of Agriculture, officially started certifying organic uh, farms and processors in 2002 and actually that was after nearly a decade of research and development for those NOP guidelines up until then it was mostly mostly nonprofits more on a state level certifying farms since around the 1970s in fact one of the one of the uh, OG OG certifiers was the organic tilth uh, I think of the organic tilth alliance or something but they, they were one of the first certifiers of organic agriculture and products, and they got started around the 1974. So you can see how long ago um, there was a push against conventional agriculture to start having uh, guidelines and standards to certify farms, processors, and 
uh, and products being made with organic products or organic raw commodity products. So, and is that you said organic tilth? Is that um, Oregon tilth? Oregon tilth. Mm-hmm. Okay, to clarify, yeah. So we're meaning Oregon tilth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I assume it got started in Oregon. <laughs> I imagine so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yes, you know, Ashley thought about um, um, some of the. How should I say this? Ashley thought it would be poignant to touch upon our my family's history um, with my grandfather and grandmother on my mother's side, but also you know the history of farming on my father's side. Um, our last name Hayward is the ward of hay or the keeper of the fields, and so it's been agriculture has been uh, um, intimately tied to to our family for uh, especially on my on my father's side for generations, hundreds of years in uh, the United States. So, but. Um, yeah, so my grandfather, um, he uh, he moved to Butte with his family from Germany back in the 30s, and um, he went to the Montana School of Mines and then got his uh, PhD in chemistry at MIT, and um, he then went on to, to work for DuPont and actually invented the extrusion of polyethylene, so all the polyethylene plastics that are used on farms today, were act- that process was actually invented by him, so he really, really understood chemistry and synthetic uh, materials. Um, and he, he, would, he would not allow his family, he and, uh, and my grandmother would not allow their family to eat non-organic products growing up because he understood the chemistry of what happens when you spray, say, glyphosate or dioxin onto your fields or use uh, extremely soluble-based fertilizers on your soil. And so... I don't know. I mean, what else did you want to touch upon that? Um, nothing in particular. Yeah. I just, I just thought it was interesting, uh, to, like to connect your family's history mm-hmm. and just to have that realization that organic food, although what, although the USDA didn't officially start stamping food as organic until 2002, um, there have been many generations where there are many people who have that knowledge and understanding and maybe intuition that our food should be grown in soil, in soil that is being uh, mediated and taken care of and building the biology of that soil. Um, and not, not even just thinking about our food, but just thinking about our world as a whole. And how we how, manage land. Yeah, how we manage land. Land. Um, packaging that our food comes in um thinking about like plastics and microplastics that can end up back in our soils and so i just thought it was interesting that as early as the 40s maybe sooner uh your your grandparents were already kind of i guess at the forefront of this whole organic mission not that it should be a mission it's just the kind of the natural way of being and how we should consume and prepare and grow our food um but they they certainly had some some foresight that maybe other people in that generation didn't when there were so many new things coming into the agriculture agricultural industry to streamline growing and grow grow more more, yeah grow more food um yeah yeah and that, that was Norman Borlaug and the Green Revolution that happened in the late 40s and 50s where we, or he, figured out essentially how to fix nitrogen using an insane amount of energy. It took 10 calories to produce a one calorie of unit energy. And it was, it was you know, even from that day, it was never a sustainable 
uh, practice because, you know, yes, even though we have 74% of our air in, is in the form of nitrogen gas, it's really difficult to split those bonds. Um, the I think it's triple bonded nitrogen to each other. It's really hard to break that down, especially at atmospheric temperature. And um, I mean, we won't really get into all of the details of the Green Revolution, maybe another podcast episode. But uh, it's funny. We're like, you know, they were at the forefront of the organic movement. It's like mm-hmm. uh, humans have been growing organically for since the dawn of time, since we started to cultivate and actually, um, uh, 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 what should we say, uh, um, improve on the, the yield and the, the growth of our, of our commodities, both produce, grains, meat, dairy, et cetera. And, um, you know, back in the 30s, the chicken was not nearly as big as as the chickens are today and now we have genetically modified organisms where we're splicing you know chilean sea bass into tomatoes and and all this shit so (laughs) it's like yeah they're on the forefront of the organic movement but really it's just like no we're just continuing the practices of our culture that have been around for ten thousand years it's it's just really funny when we're like you know when somebody says like oh christopher columbus founded north america it's like People were there for a long ass time, like when people were like explorers and they they're one of the first original explorers of the Amazon River. And it's like uh, people have been living there. It's like it's just that that idea that we can reinvent the wheel and call it an invention, Hmm. you know, can I see where I'm going with that? Yeah. Yeah. What I'm gathering is that uh, (laughs) perhaps your grandparents weren't at the forefront. Maybe that wasn't the right word I use, but they had the intuition and sense and logic that perhaps other people lacked yeah or just Um, weren't aware of yeah or just weren't aware of Mm -hmm. too but they it it was a priority for them to feed their family organic food Mm -hmm. and uh yeah and to just think about the the health the health benefits of it I, i recall um i was fortunate enough to meet your grandmother before she passed away last year yeah and uh in brief conversation with her um it was always very sweet because the one main thing when she would recall that jay had started a farm her biggest concern was are you growing organic (laughs) are you an organic farm because it's really important that you grow organic food um and to uh clarify as well she was 103 years old so this this lady knew a thing or two about health, uh, yeah. about maintaining her health yeah. and maybe it was all that organic food she consumed <laughs> yeah right exactly for sure um all right so should we kind of get into the the bulk of this uh podcast so just a little um information to just start tantalizing your senses is worldwide worldwide the organic market share has actually increased from 15 billion dollars in 1999 to 143 billion dollars in 2021 while the number of independent organic food processors has decreased from 81 percent down to 15 percent the roughly the same time period so what does that what does that tell you that there are more people wanting to buy organic food or that the I guess the consumption of organic food has increased since 1999 yeah absolutely what that tells me I mean there's a couple of things that it tells me uh, and one is that people do there is this growing uh, demand for organic food but also that these larger companies these larger multinational corporations are really now getting into this quote-unquote organic food movement 
and buying up all of these independent producers. And now there's been basically a consolidation of the number of processors of organic foods, you know, like General Mills, like Coca-Cola, uh, like any like yogurt companies, like probably like Chobani or whatever else. I'm not sure about Chobani, but, you know, it's basically there's a concentration of processors now that are buying up all these independent processors. And it's like, you know, it's just like kind of the, st- the standard capitalistic model where, you know, you got you got to get big or get out. I mean, that was the Norman Borlaug revolution of farmers, you know, when that green revolution happened. Um, <clears throat> I forget what secretary or department of agriculture individual, I forget who it said, but, you know, it was a coined term. It was get big or get out. And that was essentially the idea that, you know, smaller family farms can't compete anymore with these larger companies and you either sell off your land or you get bought out by these larger companies. And it's just a, a consolidation of of the revenue that's being administered to more independent producers. And that's really, for me, that's so important for the organic food movement is that we have a diverse array of farmers, processors, and um, producers that are in the industry that creates a robust industry it's just like biodiversity in nature if you try to to linearize really um, the way we grow food and we have these monoculture um, crops if if you know one pest were to come through and and eat all that crops you wouldn't have anything else that uh, is resistant to it and that's the same thing if we don't have a diversity of producers and processors in the industry it it creates it creates a, a lot of problems in my opinion so anyway <laughs> yeah well and it, it's interesting to think too um about or the organic foods that we're consuming and there is this movement where many people are getting on board with and creating more demand for organic products. But when you think about companies, and I'm not actually sure about Coca-Cola, what's under that umbrella for many, many, organic, many labels. organic labels. But it, I can't help but question if, if I should be purchasing organic food from such a big corporation when we could be supporting a smaller business that is producing organically because someone like coca-cola it's like are they doing this for kind of like <laughs> the marketing promotion like ooh, we have this organic branch now so that we are satisfying all the customers but at the end of the day they're still making a lot of shit products and that are leading to diabetes and obesity in our um, nation and at the end of the day do they really care about food being organic or is it just an added an stream market. a what an emerging market that yeah they can capture um yeah it's bullshit like they they don't give a shit about your health you know if they did they they wouldn't put 54 grams in a can of soda yeah you know yeah and and uh, right so where i was going with that um if they have that ability to have a variety of organic processing facilities that are connected with organic farms and other producers. It's like, why can't they just do it all organic? Right. And that's what really shows that there is that uh, disconnect between truly caring about organic practices through agriculture and food production versus just looking to make some money. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. I really highly doubt Coca-Cola gives a shit about soil fertility, let alone even understand what soil organic matter is. Yeah. Reach on is, out, Coca-Cola, if you beg to differ. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, well, really, 
back in the early 90s, the the organic movement was was emerging, if, if you will. It was becoming uh, much more well-known, and it was still kind of a niche market. It was less than 3% of the actual market share of, of food sold. Um, but it was emerging, and there was petitions and various nonprofits and, and concerned citizens uh, reaching out to the USDA um, to try and get like a centralized federal um, uh, certifying program to actually have third-party individuals or third-party inspectors inspect these processors, these producers, these farmers, um, to make sure that they are actually um, abiding by some sort of rules. And so the Organic Food Production Act of 1990 was kind of really the start um, of this process to become or to get a national organic program guidelines, NOP guidelines uh, enacted. And, and it actually took 12 years to actually to start to have an official uh, certifying body. And that's a long time. I mean, 12 years. So it, they did a lot of research and mm -hmm. and it, it basically the the OFPA is the acronym of the Organic Food Production Act. And it became public law and um Essentially, you know, their pur their purposes. Let me take a look here. Um, let's see. Well, actually, I need to pull this up. Give me a sec. You, do you have anything to say? Yeah, well, I'll just um, to, to fill this in while Jay pulls up some information we can directly reference for you guys. Um, what we hope to accomplish today is just have a in-depth conversation about a variety of third-party inspection I guess, agencies, you may call them, uh, within the United States to give you guys some clarification on what all these different terms mean. And um, there's, a, there's a lot of different labels on food out there from the USDA stamp to a variety of other just kind of buzzwords and terms that you might see. And you may not know what they all mean and what is the best choice and not to say that we are here telling you what your best option is for food, but we just want to educate and inform our listeners um, on what the different standards are, who is regulated versus um, a self-regulated body, and just give some information on all all the different um, all the different options out there so that you can make a better formed decisions on the food that you buy for yourself and your family. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway, yeah, so th this this act was basically made into public law and their purpose, there's it's three prong purpose and I won't get too into the, the weeds on on this law, but it was to, to establish a national standard governing the marketing of certain agricultural products as organically produced products Two, to assure consumers that organically produced products meet a consistent standard. And that's going to be key as we talk about all of the issues that we do see with the current USDA certifying um, process. And then finally, to facilitate interstate commerce and fresh and processed food that is organically produced, which is great. Interstate commerce is, up, is great when it comes to food. You know, not all food is going to be grown locally. You're not going to grow avocados in Washington or Minnesota, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't eat avocado. It's just produced down in California and Arizona and uh, Texas, among other places. And then they go through the definitions of, you know, like what is an agricultural product? What's actually a certified organic farm? And then they uh, go into um, various other aspects like the actual standards for organic production. Um, 
and so on and so forth. So, I mean, that's about all I want to touch up mm-hmm. upon, but this is really how the organic, um, the organic program really got started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just before we dive into the USDA organic certification process, I wanted to touch quickly on a story uh, about a customer that I had a brief, but really interesting conversation with at the cafe. And this is part of the reason that we are sitting here now having this conversation uh, about these practices. So uh, as we mentioned at the start of this podcast, our farm is certified organic. Yes, we've bounced back and forth between whether we want to continue paying for the certification or just join the crowd that's saying, yes, we grow organically, but no, we're not certified. And so I was talking to a customer and I was taken a little bit aback when he told me that he intentionally does not buy produce in the grocery store anymore that has the USDA organic stamp on it. And I was like, what? Well, why? Like, why wouldn't you want to buy food that is certified as organic? And he had this mindset that the organic, the USDA organic certification was so corrupt and out to lunch that it literally meant nothing to have that stamp. And I politely told him that there's actually a lot that goes into that certification and the regulation around it. He's like, well, no, I've heard, I've heard that you can basically just pay the fee and you get your stamp of approval. And so I was able to actually have a quite informative conversation with him and walked him through the steps that our farm had to go through to obtain that certification, right down to things like them coming to our farm and inspecting the type of string we're using, the paint that's going on products, looking to see if we have any hazardous waste or chemicals or treated wood laying around. And he was surprised that, first of all, that we actually had that physical inspection. and surprised by the intensity of the standards. And he had originally had the mindset that like, it's better just to buy, if you can, just to buy local. It doesn't really matter if they're organic because it's local. And so it just it just created this uh, kind of open conversation where I could share my experience and opinion on what we've gone through to obtain our certification. And he was also able to share his understanding of what he's heard through social media and wherever else. Um, And so it's just part of what's led us to this podcast episode in which we can share what we have learned, the information we've compiled, and kind of walk you guys through the steps of the certification and how intense it really is. And it's not just about paying the money to get a stamp, because if that's all it was, our small farm certainly wouldn't be paying the 900 plus (laughs) dollar fee just to get a stamp. Um, There's a lot more to it. And I think that's a great segue to dive into the USDA certification process. Yeah, for sure. So... um, to get started, you know, as a new applicant, essentially you have to submit um, the crop operating system plan. Essentially, it's this like 30-page document that I have to go through and basically report everything that um, is in my organic system plan. So the section C is actually labeled uh, soil fertility, and it's really the first one I want to start going over uh, when it comes to, to this plan. And uh, if you want to to uh, read along. It's actually in the uh, National Organic Program Guidelines. It's section 205.203. 
And so this is this is a quote from the USDA crop organic system plan or operating system plan. Section C, soil fertility. The producer must select and keyword must select and implement tillage and cultivation practices that maintain or improve the physical, chemical and biological condition of the soil and to minimize erosion. Another keyword is soil that we'll get back to later in this podcast. The producer must manage crop nutrients and soil fertility through crop rotations, cover crops, and applications of plant and animal material. The producer must manage plant and animal materials to maintain or improve soil organic matter content while minimizing contamination of crops, soil, and water. And so just a few of the the questions that they ask is the first one is check the major components of your soil fertility management plan for us we use compost we use compost tea we incorporate cover crops into our rotations we incorporate crop rotations though that's that's another conversation that we'll have later maybe about if crop rotation is important to fertility of the soil or not um, but then, you know, what the fertilizer materials or blends we're using, the green manures that we're using, the incorporation of crop residue, of rock minerals, of soil inoculants, etc. And then they also, you know, the second question is to check the issues addressed by your soil fertility plans. For us, it was uh, deficient nutrients, excess nutrients, increasing organic matter, increasing soil microbe diversity, the pH of our soil. Uh, soil compaction or crusting, so that's kind of the physical properties of the soil leading up to soil structure, water availability, soil erosion, and then water infiltration and drainage. And water infiltration and drainage just has to do with the compaction of your soil using, well, us usually doing intense tillage and using large, um, large tractors and other implements um, during inopportune times in your season. And so I won't go through every single one of these because we'll be here for like 10 hours because that is how long it takes to go through this. Um, but then we'll go to section D and that has to do with crop rotation. And so they, this is section 205-2 or dot 205 of the guidelines. The producer must implement a crop rotation, including but not limited to sod, cover crops, green manure, and catch crops that provide the following functions that are applicable. Maintain and improve soil organic matter content, provide for pest management in crops, and manage deficiencies or excess plant nutrients in your soil. And uh, then section E is manure and compost. The producer must manage plant and animal materials to maintain or improve soil or, uh, ma organic matter content in a manner that does not contribute to the contamination of crops, soil, or water by plant nutrients, pathogenic organisms, heavy metals, or residues from prohibited substances on the list of uh, synthetic substances that you see um, in the guidelines. So we could go on and on and on about uh, all of the different aspects of this main um, operating system plan for getting certified by the USDA. Mm -hmm. And it, it's... Uh, <laughs> to get into the intensity of it too, it, it goes right down to the seeds we purchase and certain seeds are actually difficult to come by certified organic because there's only so many farms out there growing certified organic seeds in the first place. And it doesn't mean like, it's not that simple for us. We can't just be like, well, there's no certified organic seeds. So we'll just buy our tomatoes through Johnny's and call it good. We have to have documentation of reaching out to three other 
companies to confirm if they do or do not carry that seed in a certified organic option. And then only once we have verified from three companies that we cannot find the particular seed as certified organic, can we then purchase it from a um, supplier that we trust. Mm -hmm. And that's just one example of the extra work that we do have to put in. It requires us to do that research, figure out where to get seeds from if we can't find them organic. And, and, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's a lot of extra steps for sure. Early season when you're wanting just to crank out your seed orders and get everything in your hands Mm -hmm. to have to take that extra time to go through a variety of sources. It's, it's timely. Yep, absolutely. And just just for everyone out there, genetically modified seeds and seeds treated with prohibited substances are just not allowed. So if you like any of those companies or any of those farms out there that are using GMO soy, corn or wheat, they cannot be certified by the USDA. And then, you know, so we have to go through all of our seeds. We have to document all of the, the reaching out of those companies. But then we also have to go into... Every, all of the materials that we're using on farm. And so that brings us to the next uh, section, which is section J of the crop organic system plan. And this is the materials table. And if you want to, uh, well, you can just find the section J on it. But so we, on this, we have to list every single material, fertilizer, stimulant, or amendment that we're going to be using both on our crops or that are going to be near our crops. So that includes paints when you're painting wood. That includes um, various use of use of um, plastics, um, approved herbicides and pesticides, um, but also the fertilizer. So, for example, you know we use composted chicken manure for one of our main fertilizers, but we have to document. Um, where it's going to be used, how it's going to be used, and then the frequency for which it uh, uh, will be used. And we had to go through every single, as I said before, we had to go every go through every single use or every single material that we're going to be using on or around our crops. Um, and then so when we come to section K of this plan, this has to do with natural resources and biodiversity conservation. And we'll, we'll touch upon this section again when we're talking about hydroponics that are being certified as USDA organic. Um, but this is, the, this is the quote from the NOP uh, section 205.200 and 202. Requires that an organic producer implement practices that maintain or improve the natural resources of this operation include soil, water quality, wetlands, woodlands, and wildlife. And so there are there are there are farms out there that grow hydroponically, and and maybe this is a good time to get into that, maybe not. Um, but we are going to touch upon that. Um, but this, you know, so if if you have a greenhouse structure that's you know say it's like a five acre greenhouse, these are gutter connected greenhouses that are literally covering five acres of of crop or farmland. You know, are are you improving the natural resources of this operation if you? essentially bulldoze all the topsoil off and put five acres of concrete on the ground and then start growing hydroponically. Are you improving the soil and of the water quality of the wetlands around you and of the wildlife in that area? 
My answer is no, and I think anybody would have a real tough time convincing me or anybody else who understands this understands biodiversity as as so. And so some of the uh, uh, questions that they ask is, uh, what are you, you doing for erosion prevention in your soil? And so what I, what I um, uh, checked off was we use cover crops, we use shelter belts and windbreaks, uh, we farm on contour. So all that means is if you have a graded slope, your beds are perpendicular to the uh, slope of that field to reduce uh, water runoff and better water infiltration. Are you avoiding steep slopes when you are farming? Are you strip cropping or do you have grassed waterways? Are you intercropping, etc.? And then it goes into uh, nutrient cycling and minimizing, minimizing the loss and contamination of nutrients that are, you are using. If you are using, if you are fertilizing, you are using soluble nutrients, nutrients, and those nutrients do leach unless you have good, excellent, I should say, soil management practices. That that's things like phosphorus runoff that's happening, you know, in the Missouri River or or the Mississippi River rather, or in the Congo. Um, are you applying compost um, at uh, specific times in uh, your season so to reduce uh, runoff and, and oxidation of that, uh, that compost? Um, are you actually measuring your fertilizer application rates? And this is a huge one. When you uh, put on excess nitrogen on your fields, there's many things that are happening, and, and we won't talk about all of those right now. But all of that nitrogen does not mean that your plants will have more nitrogen in them. Um, a lot of that soluble nitrogen, especially, again, if you have sandy soils, is getting leached into the subsoil, either getting into our aquifers uh, and watersheds um, or causing um, algal blooms in these various um, waterways in the Rocky Mountains uh, and elsewhere. So, uh, I mean, we could just go on and on mm -hmm. about everything that we have to think about and, and, and note and manage. It's not just getting that, that stamp of approval. Yeah, absolutely. And everything that Jay just went over, it really is just such a little tidbit <laughs> of the whole process. And to cap all that off or to maybe bring a close to the process, at the end of all that, every year we have a physical inspection as well as having to pay uh, a fee for certification and resubmit our paperwork. And that means that every year someone is coming out and doing a proper inspection of our farm can take four to six hours to complete. And they're going through all this information right down to essentially an audit of our sales and how much of each crop we grew and how yep. much of each crop we sold. Um, they can take soil samples and, and crop residue as and, well yeah, to make sure that you're not spraying stuff yeah absolutely and so they really are like the the point of the usda organic certificating or certifying body the point is that there is someone holding us accountable. accountable they can come out at any time they don't have to give us days and days of notice it can be unannounced and, yeah it can be unannounced and they can come and just take samples from tissue analysis soil samples look around the farm see if we happen to have a bottle of some sort of pesticide uh, laying around whether or not we're using it and we would get dinged yeah. for that um or we we would we wouldn't get certified yeah mm -hmm. yeah exactly and so it's just to reemphasize that having a governing body or a third party that is truly inspecting and holding farms 
liable for their actions and practices is it's a really important standard to have in the United States. And we'll touch more on um, perhaps where we need to see our society and the agriculture community as a whole heading uh, in terms of the USDA organic certification, because we've already mentioned a little bit around hydroponics, and I think that will be a topic of its own um, for another podcast, because I know we can go down a deep, dark rabbit hole on that sure one. Um, but perhaps we can uh, move on a little bit to the use of the actual term organic. Mm. So this is another <laughs> another area where there really can be some confusion. People can call their company organic with a K people can uh, in Canada where I'm from there was a brand that was just called organics it was organic with an s at the end they were not certified organic however at a quick glance on the shelf you see a bin of greens and it says organic so it's like great there's something organic and you put it in your cart um, so there can be some uh misconception around what is actually organic if you're not truly looking for that certifying that shield, stamp. The USDA certified organic, mm -hmm. yeah, it's green. Uh, I, I think I might have to correct you on that just a little bit. You know, so technically you are, for the purpose of, and this is a quote from the USDA, um, for the purpose of this instruction, the term, the term organic includes both organic and all of its variants. So that includes organics with an S, organics with an X, which is, ridiculous, organic with a K, organo, and organically. So if you say we grow with organic methods, but you are not certified organic, technically you're in violation of the use of the term organic. And this is um, this is through the um, OFPA, which clearly prohibits any labeling that falsely implies an agricultural product was produced or handled using organic methods in compliance with the OFPA and its implementing regulations, albeit or in other words, the USDA. And so you, you know, people who say, or you use the, the term organics, even though they're not certified organic, technically are, are in violation though. This is actually, the NOP continues to review these on a case by case basis. And at this point, they're, they're probably not gonna be wasting their time um, being like, hey, you can't use that word because they have so many other um, issues that they're dealing with. Um, but yeah, so. You can't technically use use those words if you're not certified organic when talking about your agricultural product. And again, for the consumer, this really we're really just bringing this up to guide you hmm. to question what you're seeing, question what your farmers are telling you, question the products that your local grocery stores carry, because uh, you are entitled to ask questions about what that means if a business uses the term organic in their name or uh, just in describing their farm, but they aren't actually certified organic. You yeah. should ask questions. And you, you absolutely should be asking questions about your local producers as well. Keep, you know, keep them to the higher standards. If they say, well, we're not organic, but we practice organically, ask them, why, why haven't you gotten certified, right? Are, are they using um, uh, leaves from their, excuse me, their leaves from their municipality? that are being um, acquired on the streets uh, of your your local uh, cities or, or towns because, you know, a lot of those trees are actually sprayed with non-approved pesticides. Those greens or those grasses that are really close to trees are being sprayed with non-approved uh, herbicides. And those substances do leach 
their half lives are are different. You know, they're they're highly variable. Like for example, glyphosate has a half life of up to three hundred days. So after three hundred days, half of the glyphosate that was sprayed on that field is still there, and that's the high end of the estimate. But just to give you understanding that these uh, non-approved substances that are being used in your municipality are actually not approved by organic practices. And if your farm is not or certified organic, but you're using organic practices and you're quote unquote using these leaves from the municipality, there very well may be non-approved substances that are actually leaching or getting um, exposed to your fields. And that is why the USDA does not al allow a lot of those, of those materials. Even though leaves are organic, there's actually um, um, contaminants potentially on that so mm -hmm. yeah. ask ask yeah. your local farmer and that can go for any sort of imported material to a farm and yep. that is why they inspect every single uh, amendment or fertilizer that is brought in for a farm and that goes for seeds as well a farm that's not certified organic it it means they can buy and use gmo seeds that perhaps they think will grow better here in montana and that means that they'll be serving you that food and, and people lie and people, yeah, people lie. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, it's an excuse um, if, a, if a farm says it's too timely or too expensive to obtain their certification. And it's, it's fine if their opinion is that the USDA organic certification is corrupt. Uh, however, you as the consumer are entitled to ask questions and ask them why, specifically why they are choosing not to certify their farm. And ask them those tough questions about, well... Do you use any amendments or fertilizers or seeds that wouldn't be um, certified by the USDA? And just see what they have to say. And hopefully it creates a um, educational open conversation so that you yep. can learn more about the farms um, mm -hmm. in your community. Yeah. And again, there are farms out there that are not certified that do have really great practices. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. So. It's just a case-by-case -case basis, really. Um, all right. I, I think I'm good on the use of the term organic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the next step in this podcast would to be uh, to discuss these add-on uh, certifications. And what we mean by that is the USDA is the federal regulated certifying agent for all organic practices. And that is what you have to have. Um, but there are, are these other... Um, add-on certifiers, I guess is the best way to put it, that have um, uh, started to pop up around mm -hmm. the country. Yeah. One of them is the Real Organic Project, uh, and another one is called the Regenerative Organic Alliance. And so first we'll kind of break down the Real Organic Project and, and what they think about the USDA and what they how they feel that they can differentiate themselves from the USDA. Um, but just a reminder... Or just to, to clarify, uh, if somebody gets certified um, through the Real Organic Project, they absolutely must first have the USDA certified organic label. You cannot get the Real Organic, uh, you cannot be certified by the Real Organic Project unless you have that. Mm -hmm. and, and just to reemphasize as well, the USDA organic is the only, the one and only federally regulated organic label on the shelf. Yep. The only one. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. 
Uh, so do you, should we go through the standards of the Real Organic Project? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, to start by saying we had looked at um, this Real Organic Project uh, for ourselves. We thought about becoming part of it mm-hmm. because we really do want to cultivate a farm in which we are not only meeting the USDA organic standards, but trying ourselves to go above and beyond and think about our future generations and what that may mean in terms of land and soil management. And so when we heard of the Real Organic Project, we had some initial intrigue about it and uh, were curious to learn a bit more about what their standards are and if and what improvements uh, were within their policies that the USDA does not have. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, we were excited because we did see some issues with the USDA, right? Like there are issues with the USDA uh, and National Organic Program, absolutely. And we are not arguing that there aren't. Um, what you will come to at the end of this podcast really is is how we feel, which is why throw the baby out with the bathwater? Just because um, this, the, the certifying um, program, the certifying agents that we have right now uh, are not uh, doing what we, the organic movement originally uh, intended to uh, enact in the first place, doesn't mean that we should just dismiss them as being um, corrupt, right. really, right? So, but yeah, so the, the Real Organic Project, do you want to kind of start on those standards or? Yeah, yeah. Well, I can just give a little quick recap here. Um, This is direct from their website, uh, and it's just their introduction. So this isn't stuff that we're just (laughs) pulling out of thin air. You can visit the real, or uh, it's realorganicproject.org slash standards. Um, And so it says the Real Organic Project has been created to help educate and connect those who care about organic farming as practiced around the world. Our mission is to grow people's understanding of foundational organic values and practices. One of our goals is to create an add-on label to USDA certified organic to provide more transparency on these farming practices. USDA organic certification is a prerequisite to participate in the add-on program. And so this is a farmer-driven program created by farmers who felt there needed to be more to the organic certification and we can totally empathize um, and respect and understand that mindset because um, you don't always know just because something has a USDA stamp on it you don't necessarily know that they are practicing the absolute best soil and land management strategies and so part of the idea of this real organic project is that they do hold you accountable for um maybe, I guess, a bit stricter regulations specific to soil management and the health of your soil. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's a great segue into talking about the standards for soil management for the Real Organic Project. Um, And so they state, it's kind of funny, so the the ROP, which is the the acronym that we're going to be using for now on for the Real Organic Project, The ROP standards for soil management are actually the exact same National Organic Program standards stated in Section 205.203 of the NOP regulatory text. However, the ROP standards honor the legal meaning of the word must. And so that is the only difference as far as soil management practices for the Real Organic Project versus the National Organic Project or um, program. 
And so the producer must select and implement tillage practices and cultivation practices that are maintained or improve that, excuse me, that maintain or improve the physical, chemical, and biological condition of the soil and minimize erosion. Erosion. Now that is the exact same thing that I said that was on my crop organic system plan that I got from the USDA for us to become certified organic. The producer must manage crop nutrients and soil fertility through rotations, cover crops, and the application of plant and animal materials. Again, the exact same as the NOP. So really, there is no difference between uh, the ROP standards and the NOP standards when it comes to our soil management practices. So, what? <laughs> I don't know if you can hear that, but our, our dog is barking in her sleep. <laughs> Loki, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, so in, on the Real Organics page here, they try to differentiate or, or I guess a- emphasize where they were seeing something that was perhaps misinterpreted within the NOP's um, documentation. So it says two areas of the NOP soil management section need clarification. This can be opinion-based, of course, but what they said is that first is the misinterpreted section on managing livestock manure and composting guidelines. Second is the limited exceptions to the soil management requirements. Then they go into details on what they see within each of those that the NOP perhaps overlooks or perhaps has some leniency to. And in seeing the, the language in this ROP standards, uh, in in that they honor legal meaning of the word must, mm-hmm. meaning that this is this is there's no exception to this. It yeah. does make me question within the NOP guidelines. Does that mean where we see the word must, we don't necessarily have to abide by those regulations? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I I don't know. They should. That's the thing. Right. Right. And so instead of creating this alternative or add-on organic certification. Why don't we get together as a community and be like, you know what, the USDA, stop with this bullshit. Why don't you guys actually abide by the public law that you put out in those OFBA original guidelines? Right. Add, as the ROP did, add legal meaning to the word must. Yeah. Hold true to the standards that you implemented in the first place for good reason. Absolutely. So, yeah, again, we can empathize and understand the sentiment of the farmers that started the ROP. Absolutely. And so, all right, should we, let's see. So, I mean, we won't get into too much on the, on the animal welfare and, and um, um, animal practice management practices of the real organic versus the NOP, mm-hmm. just because we don't have a ton of experience with that. We'll touch on a couple things that we think we can reasonably uh, communicate to the public. But um, yeah, so... Yeah, overall, I I don't feel a need to go too in-depth. I think an important takeaway from the Real Organic Project standards is, one, anyone with that stamp of approval from the ROP must first have their USDA organic certification. So it is, uh, if you see something with the Real Organic Project label, great. That means that that is a farm that is USDA certified organic, Mm -hmm. and it's a farm that cares enough about soil practices, yeah. animal welfare, uh, and management of their land that they're willing to pay an even greater fee to also have this label. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and you can reasonably trust those farms. Um, at least I think so. Uh, and so one other aspect of the Real Organic Project 
is that they do not allow hydroponic or aeroponic farms to be certified um, with their with their um, governing body um, for the ROP. So that means that, uh, well, I mean, should we go back to the, the, the Ninth Court District in California? Essentially what happened, long story short, is that uh, there was this hydroponic company that basically claimed that they should be able to get certified organic. And they upheld these orga- the USDA organic practices to allow this farm to become certified. And that set precedent. And so now you're seeing more and more hydroponic companies becoming certified organic. Mm-hmm. And now let's just come quickly come back to section 205.203 of the NOP guidelines, which specifically touches upon the requirements for soil-based fertility. What is soil? Soil is on the ground. It has mm-hmm. access to the subsoil. What is subsoil? Subsoil has a, usually a lot less organic matter in it. It has mostly has to do with the composition of... of um, of geology, I mean, you can touch upon sub- subsoil. Well, like think about an alluvial plain. So that is that is part of your subsoil. I mean, bedrock could even be considered as part of your subsoil. Right. right? It, it has potential to eventually break down and recontribute to the growth above it. Exactly. At some point in time. Um, yeah, just like the atmosphere, where you have different levels of your atmosphere, like the stratosphere, etc., you also have different levels in your soil. So you have your top soil. You've probably heard that a lot. That is the top of your soil. It's generally around a foot deep. You know, some areas of the United States, it's like ten feet deep. In parts of Nebraska and Iowa, kind of the the bread belt of uh, the North America. Um, but again. They're talking about specifically about soil-based agriculture. Hydroponics is devoid of soil. I like to call it, it is the uh, life support system of farming. It's somebody, it's all of these crops that are essentially on life support. If the power to go out and that water would stop moving around in all of these NFT channels in hydroponics, those plants would die. That is not the case with soil. You know, yes, there is drought and um, plants will die in soil if they don't have reasonable access to water, but it's not on life support. And it is in, it's, it's integrating your food into uh, the diversity and the biome of the soil. And that is what feeds your crops. Mm-hmm. Yes, crops do require various elements and molecules and hormones to grow well and provide nutrient-rich food for us. Um, but that is only done through the process of converting various insoluble nutrients and elements into soluble ones. Mm-hmm. And that is how the process of that is how we grow healthy food. Mm-hmm. And uh, in doing our research around hydroponics and the court rulings that have been passed, um, it, I came across a little interesting article is from t- 2021 and it shows that it's it's not brand new that hydroponic companies are trying to be able to get that USDA stamp and this is where this is where lines are certainly becoming crossed mm-hmm. and there are double double standards and so this is from the food safety news network and uh, just a little a little blurb um, by the Center for Food Safety in regards to a court ruling for hydroponics to join the National Organic Program. And so this is 
Uh, this is from the Center for Food Safety directly and just someone's opinion, uh, their reaction to this ruling. They said, under the court's ruling, hydroponic producers can sell their crops as organic without building soil fertility. Yet, organic farmers growing food in soil have to meet various soil building requirements to even become certified organic. This double standard violates the very purpose of the organic label and is contrary to the Federal Organic Act. We are analyzing all of our legal options and will continue to work hard to defend the meaning of the organic label. Ugh. And that just really stood out to me because that is what it is. It's a double standard. It, it doesn't make sense. And as Jay just uh, spoke about the meaning of soil and how in the USDA organic standards there is so much talk about soil and so why did this double standard occur this mm. is when i start to question the money that could be involved and perhaps yeah. where some people's mindsets around corruption in the usda organic certifying program uh, perhaps that's where the, these opinions come from is when we see things like this and we don't have to go too far down this rabbit hole today um but it uh it certainly raises red flags and questions yeah, I mean, it, it makes my blood boil, honestly, that, you know, it's just another example of money getting to politics, really, and and just crumbling the foundation that all of our predecessors have established to protect the consumer um, from stuff that will be compromising their health. It's just, it's, it's just so asinine. I can't understand why the USDA would allow this to happen. And, you know, I, I, how can we not be sure of of money getting into this aspect of it yeah. so hydroponic companies the reason why there's a big explosion of hydroponics um in the in the united states and elsewhere it's a money grab guys this is a money grab let's let's be real with this this is a high technology growing environment and who is producing all of the products all of the plastics all of the electronics all of the pumps every everything else that is used in hydroponics it's companies, it's these corporations that are producing these over-engineered technological um, products to grow food. Just because you can put plants on life support with the use of hydroponics doesn't mean that it's the viable way of producing food. This will never become a truly sustainable um, process because mm -hmm. it is devoid of nature. You put chlorine through the system to clean out your system after each cycle. You have to change the water every 10 to 14 days because calcium and phosphorus bind in solution precipitate out. The reason why the, the these um, hydroponic companies have to flush water before harvest, so they don't even have nutrients in their water solution um, when these crops are growing, you know, seven to 10 days before harvest is because you can actually almost taste the salt and taste the nutrients that are in the crops. And that is why they flush it with water before you uh, um, harvest it and sell it for retail. So this is devoid of life. This is not mm -hmm. connected to quote unquote mother earth. It's not connected to our soil. And that is what is sequestering carbon. That is what is building fertility and biodiversity in our soil. That is also uh, affecting and uh, positively affecting the health of our our citizens is through proper soil management practices mm -hmm. yeah. absolutely and to i guess really just to bring that together uh as the real organic project <laughs> is what led <laughs> us to this is way to go guys for uh <laughs> sticking to your beliefs yeah. and making it so that hydroponics is not 
allowable yeah. within that. And we're certainly in agreement that hydroponic growth um, growing is not a real organic practice and no. never will be. No, I don't. I mean, it, who knows? It might <laughs> be. I, I just don't see how it's possible. Mm-hmm. You're not building soil fertility. Yeah. 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 Well, how about we move on to the Regenerative Organic Alliance? Sure. Uh, I'm sure many people have heard the term regenerative agriculture. Uh, we fell victim to the term. <laughs> I don't want to say fell victim. No, I, uh, we fell victim it. to the term ourselves. And as a young farmers trying to get started, trying to make our name in the industry. Trying to differentiate ourselves. Yeah, trying yeah. to differentiate ourselves and become known as a farm that wants to make changes and educate and do things right. We did start off by using the term regenerative agriculture. And we've come to realize that we're not yet doing enough on our own farm to classify ourselves as a true regenerative farm. And not to say we won't get there one day, but we have a lot more work and research to do ourselves before we reach that point. Mm-hmm. We still need to reach a point of animal intrig- in- integration. <laughs> Ugh, long day integration. Um, in yeah. order to even think that we could call ourselves a true regenerative farm. Yeah. And and again, this just touches on the variety of buzzwords that you hear and see on the food that you're consuming. And so we'll talk a little bit about the ROC, the Regenerative Organic Certification, and what that means. Yeah. Um, let's see. It's going to get to... I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much I really want to go through all this. Again, most of the stuff that you see on this is also in the USDA um, crop organic system plan or operating mm-hmm. system plan. And yeah, they have like a bronze, silver, and gold as far as like how well you're abiding to the ROC's um, standards. But these standards for soil health and land management are very similar to the NOP guidelines. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't really see much that that is not part of that. Yeah. So. And, and to receive the Regenerative Organic Certified label, you do not need to first have the USDA Organic Certification, do you? For, oh, absolutely. Oh, you do? Yeah, yeah. You do. No, okay, you, so that's good to clarify. Yeah, so again, this is another one that you first have to on. have the USDA Organic Certification. Uh, just looking here, the goal of the ROC is to promote holistic agriculture practices in an all-encompassing certification that increases soil organic matter over time and sequesters carbon below and above ground, which could be a tool to mitigate climate change. It improves animal welfare and it provides economic stability and fairness for farmers, ranchers, and workers. They have three main pillars, which which consist of the soil health and land management, animal welfare, and the farmer and worker fairness. Yeah. And again, they don't allow hydroponic, aquaponic, or other soil practices to be eligible for um, their standards or their certification. So it's exactly the same as the uh, Real Organic Project. And yeah, I mean, it's just another one of those add-ons. So if you ever see that certification out there on any of the products of the farms that you're buying uh, from, that's just, it's another example of one of those add-on um, add-on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you can find more information by going to regenorganic.org yep. and you can flip through and see what that what they have as required practices versus optional practices yep. and just what that looks like for their um, their accreditation. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we're we're not shitting on these people, right? Like they they have good intention and mm-hmm. for sure. What we the point we really want to make again is 
that why do we need all of these alternative systems when we already have most of the, if not all of the guidelines already in place on the NOP guidelines, right? Like why, why, do, why are we going to, again, throw the baby out with the bathwater? Why do we need to get rid of or say that, well, the USDA is, is pointless. It's corrupt. Like, well, why don't we just fix that? It's like mm-hmm. if you break, if your car breaks down, do you buy a new car? Yeah, some people might. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Well, they're idiots. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the farmer, they're all about re uh, uh, fixing, repurposing, reusing. That is, you know, how you create a um, a profitable model. Why wouldn't we use that same idea towards the national organic program? Mm-hmm. And that is the point I think where really I want to nail down. Absolutely. Um, well. Should we kind of move on to just quickly touch upon meats, dairy, and poultry? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the USDA actually does uh, does not necessarily um, require um, poultry or uh, beef and dairy uh, to have access to pasture. Um, contrary maybe to a lot of what you uh, people out there believe, they do not need to be raised on pasture. They just need to have approved organic feed and certain minimum requirements when it comes to spacing. For example, I think you were saying the one about chicken and the square foot. Right, yeah. So there's specific to eggs. Um, I'm sure everyone has seen in the grocery store, you can buy everything from cage-free eggs to free-range to certified humane to organic <laughs> to pasture-raised to locally-raised to no hormone added to omega-3 enriched. And it, it can be hard as the consumer to decide which eggs to buy. And, um, and what actually is uh, uh, regulated? What words are regulated? Absolutely. And so I'm just trying to pull up here. Um, so according to the USDA, free range only means that the hens are allowed access to outside. So free range doesn't mean that they're wandering around outside, having the time of their lives, eating whatever they please. Uh, technically, a producer can put a few small windows and call their birds free range. Um, the label isn't a guarantee of animal welfare or how much time the hens actually get to spend outside or the quality of that outdoor space. So free range doesn't necessarily equal healthy birds and in turn healthy eggs. I mean, it essentially just means cage free. Mm -hmm. Really, right? Yeah. Um, So, and the cage free term, I believe um, is, oh, let me see here believe cage free is usda regulated mm-hmm. um don't quite have my that's all right notes in order here yeah. so cage free eggs come from the hens that aren't confined to cages makes sense they're not necessarily raised though in a pasture nope. and they're not necessarily in a free range environment but they don't spend their life in a cage. Yeah. Instead, they roam in indoor spaces. Quote, such unquote, as, roam. Yeah, roam. Um, like a barn, uh, and they won't be confined to a cage. However, um, to meet the cage-free criteria, farmers are required to give the chickens access to the outside and provide them with at least one square foot of space per bird indoors. Think about the density <laughs> of that. A chicken is essentially a square foot... <laughs> bird mm-hmm. yeah so they it, these are confined these are essentially kfos let's be real these are extremely confined 
um, population densities for raising chicken. Mm -hmm. And then the term free range doesn't mean that they necessarily have to have access to pasture, right? It's just they have, like, they can have access to, like, a little corral that doesn't even need to be open necessarily to the outside. It's usually a covered structure. Yeah, so direct from the USDA's website, their definition for free range is that the eggs just must be produced by cage-free hens. They can be housed in a building, a room, or an area that allows unlimited access to food and water. (laughs) So good, they're not starving their chickens. Yep. Um, And they need to have continuous access to the outdoors during their laying cycle. Mm -hmm. So free range birds will have access to the outdoors, but aren't outdoors on pasture pasture, um, at their leisure. And then the key difference to that is, so if they, I I mean, I'm not positive on this, but you could just have an open space with concrete and um, uh, like fencing around it and an overhead structure um, for rain or a lean to or whatever. And that's, that's free range or access to, the outside mm-hmm. and so pasture is a specific term i'm not sure if that's actually regulated by the usda it is not it's so pasture raised is not um regulated not a regulated term okay and so the u.s or excuse me pasture specifically has to do with grassland it's open soil or open grassland you know that's that's pasture so that's not regulated. So if you ever see pasture-raised chickens, it's it's not regulated. Yeah, and you may be starting to wonder, what eggs should I buy? Right. Um, and so I think with pasture-raised eggs, there's an organization co- um, or I guess a certification. This is another <laughs> one of those extra categories uh, called certified humane. And so that is a label that can be put on pasture-raised eggs that meet certain requirements through the uh, Humane Farm Animal Care Foundation, which yeah. is a nonprofit that does hold farms accountable for their practices. Um, but again, this isn't a term that is regulated. Um, however, I found it interesting to learn that the term locally raised eggs is something that the USDA regulates. Yep. And there are certain standards that have to be met for that. And the great thing about locally raised eggs is you can talk directly to your farmer. You can ask to go see their facility and you can ask them specific questions about their practices and um, what the labels on their cartons may mean. Yeah, but so as defined by the USDA, local is within what, 400 or 450 miles of the facility that it's grown or raised yes yeah. so that's i mean in today's society i guess you can consider that local and and maybe something within like 50 miles is hyper local mm-hmm. um you know i i could get behind the idea that within 400 miles is local because that's i mean that's a tank of gas essentially and if you're shipping an entire truckload of food that's a pretty efficient model as far as the amount of energy used to move that that food to uh to the consumer so mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we touched yet on organic eggs no, specifically. And I so to. this is a really interesting area um, because organic eggs—that is a term that's regulated by the USDA, and it means that the eggs must come from uncaged hens that freely roam interior spaces um, and have access to the outdoors. The hens are fed an organic only diet, so they cannot be fed any GMO corn or soy or any other GMO feed. Um, but those, but it also has to be vegetarian. Yes. 
Yeah. So that's what I was going to get into is that just because they are receiving organic feed, it doesn't mean that it is necessarily the diet that is appropriate for chickens. And perhaps you can touch a little bit on that diet from, from what you have learned. I mean, it's not a ton. I mean, I would like to talk to uh, one of our um, local farmers, uh, Mary Noah at Sweet Root, because they do raise raise chickens. Um, but they use organic feed as well. I mean, they also use non-GMO feed. As, um, but, um, you know, they're not certified. Um, but again, they're using organic practices already. So it's that, it's that thing of actually knowing your farmer and really trusting them. Uh, and getting establishing that trust, not just blindly trusting your local farmer. But yeah, no, so the USDA organic requires your feed to exclusively be vegetarian. And again, chickens are omnivores. They're not vegetarians. You know, th- you know they, they know that the, those chickens that have actu- actual access to pasture will inevitably eat um, various insects and even um, vertebrate species like voles or, or field mice or um, or lizards or whatever, like they'll, they'll definitely eat all those, but yeah. So, uh, but if you are purchasing any food for them, it has to be non-GMO certified organic feed. And that doesn't include things like, again, we, as we mentioned, um, um, black soldier fly larvae or, or crickets or, um, cricket meal, et cetera. And those have those have really great protein ratios and, mm-hmm. and the broad spectrum of proteins that is fit for a chicken. They are adapted to to consume those. So maybe that's something that the USDA can change. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I think there should be um, higher standards by the USDA around mm-hmm. egg production um, in order for humans to buy and consume the the most nutrient nutrient rich egg possible because pasture raised chickens um the the ones that do have access to the outdoors as much as possible that can be eating insects and other things maybe with the addition of some organic feed if needed Uh, it's necessary yeah of course there are times in which uh the insects just aren't around but the birds still need to eat um but those eggs are inevitably going to be thicker shelled richer in color in that yolk and just have and omega threes yeah have a better flavor provide more um i think it's like four times the levels of vitamin d more omega-3 and i'm sure we could go into an episode just on the nutrient values of eggs that are appropriately raised yeah 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 well it's not today but um yeah, so that's about all I would like to talk about as far as um, animal, hus- animal husbandry with respect to um, organic practices in the USDA. Do you have anything else to add? I don't think so. All right. Well, this is a this next section will be a kind of a fun one. Um, it's going to be more opinion based, <laughs> and so we're going to get into the non-regulated um, words buzzwords out there that you hear everyone talking about an Instagram or your local farmer or whatever. And the first one is beyond organic. And this is a term, uh, it's quote unquote, a a food movement. Another one of those food movements of defiance, or excuse me, (laughs) I'm I'm just reading a a link that we have, but um, we'll we'll go to this. uh, Well, you actually, you're the one who brought this up. Yeah, yeah. So so this whole beyond organic thing, it's, Again, 
We get it. People want to be able to say, hey, I'm I'm working extra hard here to make my food even more organic. Well, yeah, but like what the um, fuck does that mean? It's no, like it's know. it's honestly disrespectful for, to organic producers. Absolutely. I get pretty pissed off. Yeah. Especially if somebody isn't actually growing in soil like a microgreens company that says that they're beyond organic. Like bullshit. Like you're you grow you're using potting soil. What are you producing all of the potting soil on your farm? No. Are you growing all of those seeds? No. So how can you say that you're beyond organic? It's mm-hmm. ludicrous and it's it's downright disrespectful. Right. And and uh, so this term beyond organic is not just someone saying saying like, oh, yeah, we're doing we're, we're implementing practices that make us go beyond organic. They're using it as a term. And that term is beyond organic. Um it's and a marketing tool. It's I would agree it's a marketing tool. Yeah. It's uh it's very confusing <laughs> and I don't know that many consumers have even heard this term yet because in our research we had a really hard time finding any reliable information on this quote unquote certification. This yeah. Basically, all we could find were a variety of news articles in which people who kind of coined this term beyond organic, um, I guess, spoke out to say that they are moving beyond organic. And in short... What are you getting into, like, fourth dim- fourth dimensional farming? Like, I guess so. What are you talking <laughs> about? Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. Um, but But in short... Their practices that they claim go beyond the USDA standards, and I'm quoting this from um, just a newspaper article because uh, this is the best information we could find. That's it. And uh, yeah, there's definitely no like legitimate website for this beyond organic organization. Nor is there but any governing body regulating no, this. No, no governing b- governing body. But let me just go through yeah. these standards. So they claim that these are the practices that go beyond the USDA standards. They include. Companion planting, which pairs varieties of plants that have symbiotic relationships that minimize insect and weed threats and is not required to be organic. Um, cool. I'm just going to go through the through them briefly. Yeah, we'll um, cover cropping, otherwise which known, is organic. Yep, cover cropping, otherwise known as green manure, where plants are grown not for food but because they add to soil fertility or prevent erosion. As we said early on, this is a practice that we do for our USDA organic certification. And it even says right here, this practice is required by USDA <laughs> organic standards, but they're claiming it could be implemented with a greater variety of plants. Good for you guys. Wow. So again, we're already doing that. Quite confusing that they are claiming to be better than and beyond organic uh, when they're simply doing the same practices and claiming to be doing them better. Another one is using beneficial insects um, for pollination and or pest problems. Yep. Again, Again, in our USDA organic practice, we cannot use any sort of pesticide. And so we do use a variety of insects. Um, we bring bees in to help pollinate. We bring in um, organic approved ladybugs and is it lace wings? Mm-hmm. Uh, to help us with aphids. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, just to just to summarize this up, because I don't think we need to go too in depth to show that this is just not a term that should be floating around yeah. um, in the world of agriculture right now. Um, and so one thing that they can differentiate themselves from organic, certified organic, the USDA, is that they actually, you know, this term, again, it's not regulated. So this is just 
people talking, but it's practices that actually allow animals to exhibit natural behaviors like live outdoors and minimize pain for animals going into slaughter. And so, yes, you know, like that, it's not beyond organic. It's just, you know, animal welfare and being smart farmers and smart, smart consumers. Absolutely. Animals live outdoors. Yeah. Um, and so what we found interesting while trying to research and gain an understanding of what this beyond organic label means, um, we, we came across, um, some questions that were raised and, um, so I'll just, I'll just quickly read this here, but it says the USDA organic program that certifies farms worldwide is casting a glaring eye in beyond organics direction. It being beyond organic is being critical of the program and the system that we're trying to build. This is spoken by a chairperson for the NOP or the national organic standards board, but they're saying we are better than organic without the oversight, without the review and without a third party. And I think that's the most important piece we wanted to touch on is that That this beyond organic label, it's a self-regulated body so people can choose to use this term, but there is no guarantee that their farm is actually being held accountable. And in fact, all we could find was that maybe about 20% of the farms do receive a visit from someone, from some Who? organization. Their friend? Yeah. So I would I would be very cautious um, if you're trying to be sold on a product that is being claimed to be beyond organic. It does not mean it's being grown organically, nope. nor does it mean that they have any sort of certification. And it especially doesn't mean that they have a third party organization holding them accountable. Yeah. Now, and just to touch upon those inspectors, those USDA organic inspectors, they also get peer reviewed. It's another step, right? It's another step to protect the consumer. So when the inspector comes and does all this work, they submit it. Uh, I believe, to the board or at least to um, other individuals that get to review their certification of that farm. So there's multiple levels to this um, this certification process. And the beyond organic or yeah, the beyond organic label doesn't even have anybody coming to their place to begin with, to mm-hmm. look over their seeds, to look over the materials they're using. They could be using materials that are actually, compromising soil fertility that they don't even realize Mm -hmm. and that's where those agents come in and and inspect what you are using yeah absolutely and again if if a farm uses the term beyond organic and and it's a they're using it as an excuse because they can't afford organic certification there are actually programs out there that cost share organic certification for new farms for like your first what five years at least and it cuts the cost in half Yep. And of course, it's still an investment because that's still four hundred to four hundred fifty dollars out of your pocket up front. Um, but there are many, many resources to help new and young farms. Um, it's just kind of hard to accept that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's just an excuse. Yep. I really think that a community, a farm, could rally in their community and receive. Four hundred to eight hundred dollars in funding to help them pay for that organic certification if yep. that was important to them. They don't need to put a pretend label on their food. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's just I can't get over it. It's just so disrespectful to the people that are actually doing the due diligence and being uh, uh, vulnerable 
to third party agents, mm-hmm. to third party certifiers. We are really doing the work. We're really putting in the hours to to uh, commit to producing really good food, nutritious food, and to commit to soil management practices that improve the fertility and the biodiversity of our ecosystems on our farms. The people who say that they're beyond organic, maybe they are, but it's not certain, and they're probably mm-hmm. not. And you know, somebody who is okay with just throwing out a term and you know what we fell victim victim to it too using the term regenerative but somebody who only does or only uses that word and does not actually go through the usda process of being come becoming certified are full of shit yeah and this leads back to our thoughts about Rather than putting our energy into all these external organizations, why can't we all come together and figure out what is lacking in the USDA organic certification and how do we as the small farms, medium farms and the large scale farms truly um, create demand to make changes in this organic certification process by a governing body? Yeah. Yeah. When you when you write a book and you write your first draft, just because you made a mistake on the first chapter doesn't mean you throw out all of the rest of the book. You make edits, you make updates based off of new information. And that is what's happened. We have had an amazing development of of science when it comes to organic practices that help improve, you know, the fertility and biodiversity of our lands. And so the National Organic Program should be getting updated. Maybe we should uh, every five or ten years or five or seven years, there's the National Organic Systems Board or whatever, um, they should come together and talk about what should or should not be on the NOP guidelines. Absol- absolutely. <laughs> and uh, maybe that's our next step even is for us to further investigate how we can directly become more involved with the USDA absolutely. organic certification and what can our next step be to assist even just starting in our own community mm-hmm. uh, to assist more farms be able to to be able to receive yeah. their own certification and how we can start submitting um, complaints and or requests to this agency and <laughs> ensure yeah. that they actually get read and responded to because the only way that we'll be able to make change is if people start to come together and demand that change. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, so you know, the USDA is a federal is a federal um, part of the government, um, but the actual certify certification process is administered by the state. And so for us in Montana, it's uh, the Montana Department of Agriculture that does the, the certification. So this is actually st- essentially state run. So what is, this is a great opportunity to actually make edits to um, the program. We can get together as a state and demand changes to the NOP. And what if, what if 26 states or 27 states get together and we're all in agreement? Being like, why the hell are we having hydroponics certified? They aren't even growing in, in soil. On your actual guidelines, you require soil fertility as the main pillar um, for organic practices. How can you do this? How can you do this? Right? Are you, where are you getting that money? Are you getting money from for these bigger corporations mm-hmm. that are investing billions of dollars, that are publicly traded companies that are investing billions of dollars into these new hydroponic systems? It's a tech grab. It's a tech money grab. So I don't know. I'm just kind of flailing here, but (laughs) it just pisses me off. 
Well, I think maybe to sum up this episode, perhaps we can just briefly touch on a few of those other terms that people might hear and see in the Mm -hmm. food and agriculture world um, to let people know whether they should or should not be paying attention to these words. Or trust those words. Yeah, or trust those words. Um, So, for example, a commonly used buzzword honestly, in many parts of our society today is sustainable. You hear people talking about moving to Montana so they can have a sustainable life. You hear about people growing hydroponically because they think it is a sustainable practice. You hear people that are starting small farms so that they can grow sustainable food or grow with sustainable practices. And there's so many differences between all of those all of those uses of that word. And so from what I have found, there is the uh, National Sustainable Agricultural Coalition. And this is the only definition I could find for what sustainable ag means. This is specific to sustainable agriculture. So any agricultural farm or facility out there using the word sustainable, this is what it should be um, defined as. And Uh this is the legal deck definition based on the U.S. Code, Title VII, Section 3103, if you feel like diving into that. Uh, And so all sustainable agriculture means is that it is an integrated system of plant and animal production practices having a site-specific application that will, over the long term, satisfy human food and fiber needs, enhance environmental quality, and the natural resource based upon which the agricultural economy depends, make the most efficient use of non-renewable resources and on-farm resources and integrate where appropriate natural biological cycles and controls, sustain the economic viability of farm operations, and lastly, enhance the quality of life for farmers and society as a whole. Well, I can get behind all that, but (laughs) um, yeah, I mean, it's a non-regulated term. So just because somebody says they're sustainably farming doesn't mean they are. And Again, I'm harping on hydroponics, but that is not sustainable, right? When those life support systems break down, they are not Mm -hmm. able to produce crops. Absolutely. And even just thinking about the very first point within this definition of sustainable agriculture, satisfy human food and fiber needs. At the end of the day, (laughs) food that we are growing hydroponically, it just cannot sustain humans. There are not enough enough calories. calories to nourish and feed our bodies and perhaps we'll reach a point in time where we're magically growing this food hydroponically that provides the caloric intake that we require but at this time um, hydroponics don't satisfy that food need you can get lettuce you can maybe get some tomatoes we'll dive in another episode about the uh, crazy increase in sodium levels of particular crops partially due to hydroponic growth Um, and yeah yeah. Well, sustainable, yeah. sustainable. So that's the term. Yeah. And, and take it for what you will. You yeah. know, I think um, many people's long term goal is to live a life that hopefully is creating some level of sustainability for themselves and their family mm-hmm. so that future generations can reap the benefits of what we are presently doing on our land. And and I guess, well, what would you say your definition of sustainability is? You read my mind. So, yeah, my, my definition of sustainability would be uh, a specific system or practice that can go on in the future in perpetuity, right? So if, say, for example, like the Green Revolution, 
and the the fixation of atmospheric nitrogen to put into soluble um, nitrogen fertilizer. It requires 10 calories of uh, in the form of energy using fossil fuels to produce one calorie of food output. That's not sustainable. It will never be sustainable because the amount of energy that you're required to produce that calorie is 10 times the amount. And so eventually, well, first of all, fossil fuels aren't ever going to be sustainable because it's a finite resource, as is phosphorus, but that's another topic. But this will never allow us to continue to grow food in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. We, Yes, we do want to have access to those, what, 70,000 tons of nitrogen gas above every hectare of land around the world. But that is done through soil microbial life. There are specific bacteria, one of them being nitrobacter, I believe, that are able to fix nitrogen. They're able to break the bonds between two nitrogen particles at atmospheric temperature and pressure. The process of fixing nitrogen uh, industrially requires, I think, temperatures up towards 1,700 degrees Celsius or Mm -hmm. something like that. It's an insane process. Yes, it did allow us to feed a growing population, but maybe the population grew because we were able to fix nitrogen, which came first. Mm -hmm. We had 1 to 3 billion people on this planet up until the 50s, and all of a sudden now we have 4 billion more people. It's like, you know, oh, how are we going to grow all this food for all these people? It's like, yeah, we could rely on fixing nitrogen through the, the, the fixation industrialized process, or we can increase the biodiversity and productivity of our soils to fix that nitrogen like, like nature intended and not actually use too much energy to produce a, a, a unit of energy in the form of food. Yeah, that's a well-rounded definition. Yeah. Thank um, you. Yeah. Uh, I think the last term that we can maybe touch briefly on is this term. I've been carbon neutral. More frequently, yeah, net zero, carbon neutral. Certainly for some bigger corporations, it uh, yeah. it's maybe a little bit of... Um, Greenwashing. Greenwashing? Greenwashing. What does that mean? It's like it's using all of these terms and you know, we're sustainable, even though it's a non-regulated term, like, mm. like it would be like Coca-Cola being like, we make sustainable soda. It's like, right. what, okay. well, what does that mean? It means nothing. Yeah. It has, okay. It's a hollow meaning. So for example, when you go to google.com at the bottom of your screen, you'll see carbon neutral since 2007. Yeah. Like, right. What, what does that even mean? Yeah. So, right. so the term net zero by definition is the balance between the greenhouse gases produced and removed from the atmosphere it can be achieved by cutting emissions to as close to zero as possible and reabsorbing any remaining emissions by natural or technological means. Yeah. Or purchasing carbon credits. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in farming in particular, what do you know or have you heard about net zero in farming? Like, what does this mean if a farm's goal is to be net zero? I don't know. I mean, you know, there's many different farms out there and there's a lot of different practices and it ranges from actually sequestering carbon based off of your soil management practices. So that would be carbon negative, I would say. But it also, you know, how many, how much diesel did it take? So mm-hmm. if you only sequestered a thousand or a thousand pounds of, of carbon in your a hundred acre field, 
but it took 10,000 pounds of diesel. <laughs> it's like, can you, it's like, I don't know. You're, it's just not looking at it holistically. It's separating these two sides of the coin or two sides of the practice or system and being like, well, look, we're, we're net zero. We're carbon, carbon negative because mm-hmm. we're sequestering carbon. But then they're also, you know, burning a ton of diesel. And, and this is why it's not regulated. It's a hard, absolutely. It's a hard term to actually quantify. Like yeah. for, ex- for, for example, um, solar panels, how much energy did it take to mine all of those minerals to produce them, to ship them, to install them, is is that actual panel even throughout the life cycle of that panel producing enough energy to uh, uh, um, to uh, what's, not, what's the word compromise or um, what's the what do you, what I, word do I, I can't use? help you <laughs> or like uh, how do I say this <laughs> um, how much energy will it produce versus how much energy it took to produce right if it took right. a thousand calories of energy to produce that solar panel but it only provides 500 calories of of, of energy mm-hmm. during the life cycle of its um of its time here on earth then it's not sustainable it's not net zero mm-hmm. right that's it's carbon positive or whatever mm-hmm. the term is mm-hmm. Right. So. And then in, in that regard, we then need to think about the batteries that are holding a charge once the solar panels are charged up. And what is the life of that battery? Where do these batteries go once they've reached their lifespan of five to 12 years? Yeah. Um, and I, I think that is you touched on how there's just it's, it's hard to define what this net zero may mean. And of course, at the end of the day, we all want to do our part to try to eliminate um, adding additional greenhouse gases to our world. But, you know, even even things like tilling the soil that creates a release of CO2, correct me if I'm wrong, correct. from the ground when you're turning up that soil. And um, we, we need to think about the size of a farm that is wanting to term itself as net zero because a tiny little farm that sure it runs on a solar panel. <laughs> great. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Like it truly is. Um, it's great that you are able to produce your food using only natural sunlight. Yeah. But if you compare that to the quantity of food and the calories that can be produced is it a benefit to our society when what am I trying to get at here? Um, like our farm, we're certainly not net zero. We have a small um, walk behind tractor that we use. We mm-hmm. have a greenhouse that is heated in order to provide our community with um, calorie and nutrient rich vegetables earlier in the spring uh, and into the winter we have greenhouse plastic um there's metal we have to bring in particular organic amendments to assist us in growing uh even better food and helping replenish our soil and so it just it's it's another one of those confusing terms where you can tell that society is moving in a way where it's like, oh yeah, we we got to be net zero. I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna support these people that are trying to be net zero, and great. But what are they providing for you? Yeah, are they just using a term 
without thinking about like what they're actually producing for the community. Like maybe they'd be better off <laughs> not being net zero, like having a little bit of um, whatever carbon emissions. But with that, they're able to grow an additional five acres of food yeah. because they are using one tractor. Yeah, absolutely. And just because carbon dioxide, you know, you need to look into the carbon cycle for anybody who thinks they know about greenhouse gas emissions. Carbon dioxide is necessary for life. In fact, it is an absolute must for plants. They are able to pull carbon and put it into carbohydrates that feed you because there's carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And we won't get into the, the conversation of climate change, etc., but I can specifically talk to the chemistry and the biology of carbon and carbon dioxide. And just because there's carbon dioxide and water coming out of the tailpipe because there's been uh, combustion that's happened. It's a specific chemical process, and the byproducts are carbon dioxide, water, and energy. Just because that's happening doesn't mean that carbon dioxide necessarily is bad, right? We do require it. In fact, most gr uh, greenhouse um, climate-controlled producers out there they use supplemental carbon dioxide. They put carbon dioxide into that environment and they actually increase it upwards to 700 parts to, I don't know, I think even 1,100 parts per million of carbon dioxide. We're at around 400 parts per million right now in our atmosphere. And these crops grow quicker. You can look at the science and the data on it. These crops grow quicker if there's higher concentrations of carbon dioxide. It's a plant growth promoter. It's required. So just a note. <laughs> um, and perhaps uh, we'll need to bring an expert on the subject in to interview and have a more in-depth conversation with about um, all the different terminology within this net zero movement and what it means and uh, why there is an importance to certain aspects of it. Yeah. And then we can provide our listeners a, a little bit more educated yeah. information yeah i, I want to bring a, chem a chemist on mm -hmm. to talk about these these cycles absolutely yeah so well wow. i think we did it i think we're done i'm I ready so yeah thanks for listening everyone please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends and family it really just takes a couple of seconds you can also leave us a review we appreciate all forms of feedback certainly helps us to keep our egos in check and if you appreciate our work and want to help us succeed, please consider contributing financially. You can do this by visiting patreon.com backslash the sour dough. That's patreon.com backslash the sour D-O-E. You can also follow us on Instagram at sourdough.mt.